What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans, and we have a big hour ahead here on the exchange. More wild swings for stocks today. The S&P briefly falling below 3,900, its lowest level in more than a year. And a mid-morning comeback failed as we're in the red. Legendary investor Bill Miller, who called the pandemic bottom on this show in March 2020, is about to join us with some advice on what to do now. We'll also get Bill's thoughts on the crypto crash. Bitcoin reversing higher after slipping below $25,000 this morning. Can you, should you, still own it for the long run? And a firm reports results today. The stock down 85% this year. All the payment names are down big. Should you buy now or will you pay for it later? But first, let's get over to Dominic Chu with the latest on these markets. An interesting divergence happening in many parts of the market right now. It's been generally negative, right, overall. But still, we have seen pockets of green overall, small caps notably so today. But if you take a look at where we stand right now, at the low point today, we were down 357 points or thereabouts for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We are up about 100 points from those levels, down 250, 31,584, the last trade there. The S&P, 39.11, down about 24 points, about a half of 1%. And then an outperformer today in the trade, only off about one quarter of 1% is the NASDAQ Composite, 11,340, the last trade there. One place we are keeping an interesting close looked at is what's happening with those meme stocks. You remember what they were? It was GameStop. It was AMC Entertainment, Bed Bath & Beyond. They're up big today, but they're way off their session highs. At one point, we were talking about massive double-digit gains, 20 30% for some of these stocks out there. GameStop, AMC Entertainment, and Bed Bath & Beyond now up about 11 7 and 5% respectively. I will point out there's increasing chatter around some of these names, but remember, there's a common element for some of these as well, and that is the short interest, the number of people who have borrowed stock to bet against these names. According to the latest data from FactSet, you're talking about GameStop having short interest of around 16 or so percent of shares outstanding, 18 percent for AMC Entertainment, and near 25 percent for Bed Bath & Beyond. So they tend to be more volatile, especially if there are upside moves, so keep an eye on that. And then Apple, no longer the most valuable company in the world, the second most, Saudi Aramco, perhaps indicative of the times when a Saudi state-controlled oil company is now the most valuable company in the world. We know energy prices have been on the rise, but still, it's off 3% right now. Apple is one of those stocks where a lot of traders are saying, hey, this is a stock, remember, over the course of the last year, Kelly, that had like the safe haven status at one point. You could play the inflation trade, the growth trade, and safe haven all at the same time. I would point this out. Right now, analysts still have a consensus price target that implies a 30-some percent upside to Apple. So unless they take those down, Apple shares are still among the analyst favorites out there. Three-quarters of analysts, Kelly, who cover this stock, say it's a buy or equivalent rating. Back over to you. Yeah, and three-quarters of the American public that owns it. (laughs) Tom, thank you very much. All right, let's bring in our headliner now with stocks deep in correction, tech names reminiscent of the dot-com crash, and crypto crumbling. Joining us now is famed investor Bill Miller. He is the chairman and chief investment officer at Miller Value Partners. It's great to have you here, Bill. Let me point out for those listening on the radio, I believe you are wearing a Bitcoin hat. Yes, I am. 
care to elaborate on uh, after we've heard from Buffett and Munger, Warren Buffett once again saying he wouldn't own all the Bitcoin in the world for $25, stable coins collapsing, platforms, uh, you know, having speculation about bankruptcy. What is your bull case and why do you think the public should think about owning Bitcoin here? Well, I've owned Bitcoin for a long time, Kelly, as, as you know, and I've been through three, at least three declines of over 80 percent. I think this is probably the 10th decline of over 50% uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, I, I own it as, a, as basically an insurance policy against financial catastrophe. We saw when the pandemic hit that it got annihilated quickly and then came back quickly again uh, to new all-time highs. So I, I don't have a view about whether Bitcoin's done going down here. I, I am I'm kind of surprised it isn't lower because of what's happened with the with the Terra, you know, stablecoin uh, uh, getting destroyed. And, and I think the, the, the Fed has correctly said that these stable coins are problematic. There's actually a really good piece by a, a law professor named Hillary Allen, who said that um, that basically stable coins particularly are like um, shadow banking 2.0, which remember when you wrote about the reserve fund today blowing up. Right. And I think that was uh, that was because those weren't regulated. So I, I do think it's it's an area of fairly high risk and high volatility. But again, it, it, for me, I think I haven't heard a good argument yet why anybody shouldn't put at least one percent of their liquid net worth in in Bitcoin. Um, you, anybody can afford to lose one percent, and but you don't have anything in your portfolio that can go up ten times or or more from here. But if you're owning it as a hedge against financial catastrophe, hasn't it proven it's both susceptible to broad market sell-offs and liquidity, and that it could have its own financial catastrophes? That it might be sort of the opposite of the kind of investment you'd want to own through those periods. It's not like it's it's not like it's up right now. It's basically acting like a, a high-valued tech stock, like an Art K name or something. Yes, that's exactly right. The correlations of Bitcoin have bounced all around since it was created about 12 or 13 years ago. The correlation right now is, is with um, risk on, risk off. So when, when the market's doing well, uh, then Bitcoin's been up. And when the market's doing poorly, Bitcoin's been down. Been down. Um, and I, I think those correlations can continue to bounce around. So again, I don't have a, I don't have a particular view. I mean, if, if Bitcoin was in half from here, would I be surprised? No, I, I, I would be uh, you know, chagrined because I own a lot of it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Are you selling any? Have you sold any? Uh, I, I, uh, the short answer is uh, no. <laughs> Would you think about selling any now, or are you the true diamond hands here? No, I, I, the, only, the only time I ever sell anything, and I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that, I have sold stuff uh, to meet margin calls because I'm always on, always on margin, and, and the stuff that you sell is the stuff that is very, very liquid, um, for me anyway. Uh, but again, that's, that's, just, that's just a particular thing. You know, Jesse Livermore talked about... Uh, a, uh, basically losing money being a, a tuition tuition payment because you learn something. And I would say that, that the tuition payment for me has been very high since November. I hope President Biden gives me some, uh, you know, some so basically some uh, debt relief. <laughs> well, you're not the only one. Payments. So let me ask then, because you have been through so many of these cycles and uh, unlike many other value investors, you are still bullish on Bitcoin specifically. What would you say to other uh, investors who have been caught up in parts of the rest of the crypto collapse and aren't sure whether they should rotate from part of the, you know, from a crappy stable coin into Bitcoin, whether they should just liquidate entirely or whether they should never dabble with crypto again or just seek out, you know, the Bitcoin, Ether, if you believe those are blue chips, you know, go that route. Can you just give kind of your final uh, take here on what you think this is all going to mean for the next couple of months? 
Well, a couple of months, I, I don't have a, I don't have a clue. I, my view is that people have lost a lot of money in crypto. They've been speculating and stuff that they probably don't know anything about, especially if they're surprised to have lost money because it's been it, most of the of the uh, ICOs that came around in 2017 have gone to zero. And I'd say you've got you know probably 10,000 coins right now, and all except for Bitcoin, in my, in my opinion, even including Ethereum, have competition. And uh, and some of those things, you know, there's there's I don't know, 4,500 public companies or so. And there might be 4,500 venture things involved in the crypto space that might work out. But I don't have the expertise to evaluate them. And I, I think you have to think of them as venture investments, which means that they're going to be driven by power law, uh, you know, power laws instead of, uh, uh, you know, the typical uh, Gaussian distributions, which means that most of them aren't, aren't going to work. And a few that do work will do very well. But I don't know which those are. I, I'm just I'm comfortable with Bitcoin. All right. Last question on this, obviously, a much more important talk to you about the broader markets. But then do you think that Bitcoin is a buy here at, let's say, twenty nine thousand? Uh, I would say that, again, I'll repeat what I said earlier. I haven't heard a good argument about why you wouldn't put one percent of your liquid net worth in Bitcoin. Um, you know, if, if you lived in any, any of those, you know, uh, colorfully named countries by, by Donald Trump, you know, Venezuela, Argentina, Lebanon, uh, uh, Turkey, Nigeria, Iraq, uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia. Russia lost 50 percent of their reserves when the U.S. government decided that that it was going to it was going to sanction them. So I, I, I can't see why you wouldn't have some something in Bitcoin just just as a hedge. Again, you, anybody can afford to lose one percent or you shouldn't be invested. Well, and in, as you've said, in your case, this was much bigger than 1% uh, in, in the last couple of months. So let me pivot and talk to you about the markets more broadly, about stocks. Again, to remind our viewers, back in March of 2020, you came on this program and said that you thought stocks had a generational buying opportunity that was pretty much right at the market lows during the pandemic. And we've seen stocks make a spectacular comeback since. Now we're starting to revert back to some of those pandemic levels, even in names like Amazon, um, Netflix, for instance. So what do you think of the market overall? Do you, do you think that we've put in a bottom here? Uh, well, first of all, I, I have no idea if we, if we put, a, put in a bottom or not, and neither does anybody else. I would say, though, that um, there was a relatively easy call back in March of 2020. You could identify what the problem was. It was a pandemic. Um, the Fed came to the rescue very, very early on. This is very different. Um, this is much more like, I think, the early 1970s. So, so no, one who, no one who is of working age, meaning anybody who is 65 or younger, has ever invested in a, in a rising rate, a secularly rising rate, rising inflation environment. And only a few of us who are much older than that, myself, you know, Lee Cooperman, Mario Gabelli, perhaps, who have been who have invested in those kinds of environments. And so it's just a very different the regime change. There's been a major regime change right now. So you've got rising yields, you've got rising inflation, you've got rising oil prices. You have a war in Ukraine in 1973, October 6th. I remember well because I was a, I was a duty officer in the army at the time. Uh, that was when uh, that was when the Arab Israeli war broke out. And that was the trigger to a lot of the turmoil that we saw throughout the 1970s. It took 10 years, and it finally Paul Volcker to, to break that inflation and getting, you know, when, when Treasuries were 14 percent. Inflation down, but uh, it's it's a it's a different, a much different environment now from what it was in in March of 2020. Now that said, uh, you know we have a. Today, I think we have six new highs and 2,000 new lows in the market, and that's pretty extreme. 
there were, you know, as of I think a day or so ago, there were roughly 100 S&P stocks that were 52-week lows, another 120 or 130 that are within a couple percent of those lows. So 200 S&P 500 lows uh, have, have marked the bottom in most of the corrections that we've had, you know, from 2011, 2015, uh, 2015 2016, 2018. So I, I think we're close to it to an intermediate low here. Uh, but again, it's a different environment now. And, and I think that the types of stuff that worked in the 1970s are the types of things that will work uh, today. And so some of those are basically you're, you're talking about low PE, high dividend yielding Names like Cliff Asnes, Cliff Asnes, you know, he's got a, runs a value value portfolio. He's he's actually up this year nicely right. in his in his hedge fund. But names like you know One Main Financials five times, General Motors is five times, Taylor Morrison, one of our housing homeowners, is two point nine times earnings. We just talked to Cheryl Palmer, the CEO, excellent CEO, the other day. I mean, they're they're hitting on all cylinders at, at Taylor Morrison, and you know their their stock is very cheap and they're buying it back. Bosch Health is two point uh, two point. Uh, three times this year and 2.1 times next year. And it's holding in uh, Bosch and Loan, which they're going to spin off. It's holding at 90% holding. And that is greater than the current market cap of BHC. So there's a lot of values out in the marketplace today. But I, I do think that there's you know, it's, it's a different regime, as I would say. Well, let me revisit some of the names that you mentioned when you were on with us briefly in February. Uh, Facebook down 14 percent since then. Uh, Tupperware down 56 percent. Vroom is down 81 percent. Um, Amazon and Gannett down 34 percent. Alibaba down 32 percent. Which of these names would you stick with? Because it sounds like what you're doing is rotating into a different set of stocks for the environment that you just described. Yeah, I would say, I mean, we were totally wrong about, about Varum. Um, and you've seen that Carvana's down 90%, I think, since probably I was on that, you know, I was on that, that show. And I think that the Garcia's father and son have actually you know, bought more stock and, and they've, got a, they've got a high yield bond that yields over 10% right now. Um, but of, of those names, I mean, Facebook, Amazon, clearly I, I, we own, I, I think, are, are, are great names in here. I'm actually going to go out and, uh, to visit Amazon uh, later this month. Um, I forget which other ones you mentioned. Sure. So also Alibaba, Gannett, Tupperware obviously had terrible earnings the other day. Um, Then there's a couple of Bitcoin names like Silvergate and Stronghold. We already talked about that. But I think for picks that are more like Gannett, Alibaba, Tupperware. Gannett, Gannett, I'm a large personal holder of it. It's it's small and it's too small for the the funds. I do think that, you know, uh, you mentioned Silvergate, which we didn't. Silvergate is down at eight bucks today probably on the Terra blow up um, because it bought Facebook, uh, Facebook's DM technology. But Silvergate's going to do a stable coin uh, probably in the next year or so using that technology. And Silvergate is a, is a federally regulated bank. And so the Fed is going gonna, is gonna to be, I would say, probably delighted that Silvergate's going to do that so that people don't have to go to the, the, these stable coins that don't have the regulation around them. So I, I like that one. I like that one a lot here in the, in the crypto space. Any comment on Tupperware, which seems to be emblematic of the inflationary yeah, t- environment? Tupperware, Tupperware we've been we've been wrong about. Um, yeah, I, I like the I think Miguel Fernandez there is really, really good. They have a new CFO. Um, they've been hit with resin prices. They've been hit with losses in, in China, especially, which is one of their one of their growth areas. So I, I think they, my, my late partner, Ernie Keeney, who used to talk about when, when we had one of these names that goes down the way this one has, you know, 60, 70 percent. You talk about, you know, it's like it's like in hockey going behind the net, <laughs> but come out the other side. So I think, you know, we're behind the net on, on Tupperware here. But I do think it's got it's got good management and I think they're doing the, they're doing the right things. 
When you say that this is a different market or a harder call than the pandemic lows, it sounds like you're saying that the, the call that we're bottoming may be you know, somewhat easy to make, but that it's less clear what the market upside is from here because of those analogies to the 1970s, that you have to get maybe a little bit more specific in the kinds of holdings that you have. Is that what you mean? I mean, what about those people who worried that equities won't perform at all if we're in that kind of decade all over again? Well, equities will sure perform better than bonds, yeah. which, are, which are having one of their worst years in, in, in history, although we've had a rally in the last, in the last few days. But you know, I think in, a, in, a, in an environment where the Fed is, is determined to get inflation under control, and they can do that, the problem is that, that right now, I mean, while the, the, you know, the five-year break-evens are around 3%, uh, and if that's the case, uh, that's, that's great. If, we, if we're back to 3% by that time, we're way above it. We're way above it right now. But it's typically taken about a, a Fed funds rate of 100 basis points higher than the Fed's preferred uh, preferred uh, 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 target of the uh, the PCE. So, and that's that's running, you know, probably in the fives right now. So that's probably going lower. But still, you're talking about a, a neutral rate, which is, I think, a lot higher than the than potentially. I'd say potentially a lot higher than the market is currently pricing in. But again, neither I nor the market knows what the you know what the future is going to hold on that. So on the Fed, you know, you're not in the business usually of trying to tell the Fed what to do so much as anticipate what they are likely to do here. But do you think Powell is going to uh, some now think he's kind of a dove in hawk's clothing uh, that, you know, he's he's not serious enough about tackling the inflation problem. And we might have had a bit of a tantrum the past few weeks since the Fed meeting in response to that. Uh, does he need to be as hawkish as Powell? Would you pref- I'm sorry, as Volcker, would you prefer to see something a little bit more? Uh, strong from them? Or do you think that the landscape here risks breaking if they're too hawkish and that perhaps some of these imbalances will resolve themselves? Well, you know, Bill Dudley, the former head of the New York Fed, and Neil Kashkari, a former former Fed governor, have both talked about the Fed maybe uh, having to have stocks be a lot lower uh, and and that being the way in which they can get get inflation down. I would just note that despite what they said, the, the Fed has a dual mandate it's not just to get inflation down. It's inflation. Uh, it's 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 full employment and inflation, and uh, and and therefore economic growth to get full employment. Uh, so I, I think they've got to balance that. The deflationary forces that we saw the last ten years. We had I think only two quarters in ten years prior to the you know prior to this inflation breakout uh, that the Fed even got to two percent. So there's a lot of deflationary uh, forces out there, including demographics. And I think that I think the, the, the Fed is going to be data dependent as they as they should be. And I, they're going to try they're going to get inflation down at, you know, one way or another. But I think they've also got to be be alert to the fact that um, they, they're trying to avoid a recession. Now, we're not we're not close to that now, but the market's certainly worried about recession, as you can see, in the way that the, the, the economically sensitive stocks are behaving. I mean, General Motors is five times earnings and, you know, they're 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 doing great. And, and you can't get cars these days. And, and again, so to reiterate a lot. Sure. And those names that you mentioned from earlier, uh, in case people missed them, you're looking at General Motors, One Main Financial, Taylor Morrison, the home builder, Bausch Health, uh, that these are examples of low P.E., high dividend yielding names, which is a strategy that you think could work here. And again, thank you, Bill, for all your time today. So let me just revisit uh, as we let you go. Do you think we are close to a recession right now in danger of slipping into one? No. Do you think that risk is much higher in 2023? Well, that, I, I don't know about that. I, you know, I, again, as you as you as you know, I, I, when I write, used to write all these quarterly market letters, my my one recurring theme was nobody can predict the market. 
And it's, it's, it's kind of dumb to try and do that. The market goes up most of the time because the U.S. economy grows most of the time, but sometimes it goes down. And, uh, and it goes down when there's a recession. The other key point is that the, 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 the economy does not predict the market. The market predicts the economy. And sometimes it overpredicts it, you know, as, as George Soros has pointed out with his reflexivity. But you know, I, I think the market is, is clearly telling you that there's a, a much increased risk of, of recession. Will we have one? Who knows? I don't, I don't have any idea. And either way, these are the strategies that you're sticking with uh, for the market that we're in, which I let's how can I exactly can I quote you here? You think we're we're close to a bottom, um, close to an intermediate low here uh, on the record. There we have it. Yeah. Given given the given the, um, the number of new lows relative to number of new highs, I would I would certainly say that there's a lot of pessimism priced into the market and, and you know, a reflexive rally from here or from five percent or more lower would not not be at all surprised to me. All right, we'll leave it there. Bill, thank you so much today. It's good to see you. Thanks, Kelly. Bill Miller with Miller Value Partners. Now, we've got a news alert on Twitter. It's been a very busy day for Twitter news uh, and for Tesla shares as well. Let's get right over to Julia Borston. Julia? Well, Kelly, Twitter's making some changes ahead of Elon Musk's pending purchase of the platform. The company telling us that effective this week, they are pausing most hiring and backfills except for business critical roles. Also telling us they're pulling back on non-labor costs to, quote, ensure we are being responsible and efficient. The company also confirming the departure of two senior executives. Kayvon Bakepour, he was general manager of consumer, had been at the company for a number of years, as well as Bruce Falk. He was revenue product lead, the company announcing replacements for them. Bakepour tweeting out, quote, Prague asked me to leave after letting me know that he wants to take the team in a different direction. You see Twitter shares trading down just fractionally. Kelly? What do you read into it, Julia? And are the prospects of Musk's takeover looking stronger or weaker given the share price decline in both Twitter and Tesla? Well, every time I look at that share price decline, I'm looking at the differential between where it's trading and that $54.20. Now it's at $45.94. So that just shows that the the street, the the market does see uh, a big chance that this doesn't happen because it isn't trading closer to that 54.20 mark. But I think, Kelly, that these departures show that the company's really trying to make sure that they're keeping costs down. They're not going to make any dramatic changes before Musk comes in. Um, Kay Von Bakepour has been at the company for a long time. He was seen as a real innovator and one of the people who's leading the fast iteration of change, the introduction of new products for consumers, um, and the fact that he's leaving. And he was on, on paternity leave when he was told that he was not going to be coming back. Um, really speaks to the fact that Prague Agarwal is trying to make changes now before Musk comes in. Wow, that's an interesting detail. Julia, we appreciate it. Thank you. Julia Borson reporting. Coming up, low home supply, rising prices, and rising mortgage rates continue to hit affordability. My next guest expects that to continue, hitting one group of home buyers particularly hard. The CEO of Realogy joins us live next. Plus, a firm on deck with results after the bell with the stock down more than 80% year to date. Should you get in at these levels, or if you buy now, will you pay for it later? Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? 
Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. Spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. For well over a year now, record low supply has crushed the affordability of housing. And while supply might finally be on the rebound thanks to slowing sales, it's only really cooling thanks to the red-hot mortgage rates. We've gone from 3.3% at the start of the year to more than 5.5% for the 30-year fixed. For more on the ripple effect this is having, let's bring in Ryan Schneider. He is the president and CEO of Realogy, soon to be anywhere. Is that right, Ryan? That's correct. We're incredibly excited to be here with you, Kelly, and to... uh share the fact that we're changing our name from Realogy to Anywhere going forward as we meet consumers and agents and others anywhere out there in the real estate ecosystem. I'm trying to think, like, what does that tell me is really going on in the housing market? It's like you don't want to be what 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 prompts this kind of change? Well, as a company, you know, we compete under the consumer facing brands like Sotheby International Realty, Century 21, Corcoran, ERA, and a few others. And we've been on a transformation journey. We've gotten back to being a profitable market share grower. We're actually fortified our balance sheet. We're leading our industry with technology. And we really like our progress capped by about 900 million of EBITDA last year, 550 million of free cash flow. But we're also going to continue to lean into what's happening with the consumer in real estate. We're out there simplifying the transaction for consumers every day, taking the friction out of it, doing things that are helpful to the consumer, the agent, and to us as Mm. our financials. And we wanted to use this chance to seize the moment to signal the next chapter of our transformation. We did an investor day today, laid out a five-year plan with a new name and a new focus as part of that. Yeah, know some big changes. So let's talk about the housing market. I was at a dinner last night where uh, we were all just sharing, swapping stories. And the theme that kept coming up was still the incredible speed at which properties are selling in this part of the country, how low inventory is, how prices remain uh, pretty high. So maybe we're seeing fewer transactions. I know that's a headwind for a company like yours, but this we're not seeing a big crash in the market yet. We have not seen a big crash in the market at all. In fact, we've continued to see this phenomenon of, frankly, demand being much, much higher than supply, right? We've underbuilt houses in the U.S. There's a lot of demand with remote work and other things happening. And, you know, we're in parts of the market, even like the 500,000 and up segment, we're seeing listings go up. And even though people talk about the number of transactions going down, the latest forecasts I've seen for this year still have us selling more homes in the U.S., than we did pretty much all of 2010 to 2019. Last year was a record high. I do expect transactions to fall back a bit, but there's still this just demand supply imbalance that's showing up in the prices that you mentioned and in the speed at which houses are selling. What's At what point does that change? I mean, when the 30-year goes over 6%, maybe it doesn't, maybe home prices just, you know, what's going to slow this market then? Well, first off, you know, we're rooting for the home builders all we can and that getting more supply is absolutely important. The second thing is it's been interesting to watch higher rates in the supply chain uh, constrained environment. Consumers seem to be pushing through and still going for mortgages, but they're obviously they're shifting to adjustable rate mortgages. They're changing kind of the home that they want or downsizing a little bit on their expectations. And so, you know, rates are clearly a headwind for the uh, for the industry and further rate hikes can be a negative for sure. But it's been a different environment with this supply constraint and this demand side. 
and people have pushed through with rate increases um, still to go ahead and buy their homes more than even a, probably I would have expected. Yeah, no, I, I have to say we all are kind of thinking the same thing, at least at this point. Ryan, it's great to have you. Thanks for sharing all your thoughts today. Appreciate the chance, Kelly. Have a good afternoon. You too. Ryan Schneider is the president and CEO of, for now, Realogy. Coming up, it's been a rough year for biotech. The IBB uh, biotech ETF is down nearly 30% since January, but the sector is outperforming today. Are they poised for a comeback? We'll look at some potential catalysts ahead. Plus, tensions are growing between McDonald's and its franchisees. What the company is doing that some say could alienate its workforce at a time when union efforts are growing louder than ever. We have details ahead. And as we head to a break, let's take a quick look at the Dow, which is near session lows right now. But a handful of names are still in the green, while Boeing, Amex, and Apple are your biggest decliners. Apple, the third worst stock in the Dow right now, down around 141 and change. We're back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Take a look behind me where we are about to hit fresh session lows on the Dow. There we have it, down 375 points. So uh, you've really seen markets sell off more steeply in the past hour or so. This was after we were up as many as 80 points. Again, right here are session lows, at least as of 1.30 Eastern time. The S&P is down 43 points to 38.91, so we're back below 3,900. The NASDAQ is down 100 points, so its decline percentage is quickly catching up with the other major averages down almost 1% to 11,259. It's been just a, a breathtaking decline for the NASDAQ over the past month or two. I mean, really since November, but really picking up lately. Let's zero in on a couple of movers this hour. We are watching Rivian shares moving higher after that smaller than expected loss. It was a revenue miss, but they reaffirmed their delivery target and analyst comments were largely positive, pointing to signs that production ramp is happening. The shares are up almost 20% to 24. And a big move for Bumble after quarterly results beat expectations. The dating app saw a 7% rise in paying users during the quarter, maintained its previous guidance. These shares are up 23%. On the flip side, Beyond Meat is sinking after a larger-than-expected loss and revenue shy of estimates. The CEO saying results were impacted by costs associated with launches that he says will pay off over the long run. The shares have reversed higher. They're now up about 2.5%. And let's check on Coinbase. Shares today up a little more than 4%, but the crypto complex under big pressure. Uh, and Coinbase shares are still down 45% this week. They also just tweeted they are aware that some customers are having issues trading and accessing accounts on Coinbase, but their funds are safe. So about a 5% gain still for Coin today, around 56 a share. Over to Christina Partsinevelis now for a CNBC News update. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is calling on fellow senators to pass the Ukraine aid bill today. The House passed a $40 billion aid package earlier this week. McConnell notes that the House bill passed with overwhelming bipartisan support and that Ukraine badly needs that aid. Well, the latest on the fight in Ukraine and possibly new aid on the news with Shepard Smith starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time here on CNBC. 
A northern New Mexico wildfire has become the largest in the United States, and firefighters say that it's essentially unstoppable at the moment. A continuing drought and a forecast of high winds today is making the situation more difficult. One piece of good news, though, the flames are now heading away from the area's biggest population center and a popular tourist destination as well. And we've just got some breaking news out right now from the January 6th committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The panel has issued five new subpoenas to House members, including House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy. Also on the list, Republican Representatives Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Christina, thank you very much. Still ahead, buy now, pain later. Names like Affirm, Block, and PayPal have left investors waiting for a payout with all three down more than 50% this year. And Affirm is on deck to report tonight. We'll look at what's next for the sector and if any stock is cheap enough to dive into. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Dow's now down more than 400 points, or 1.3%, and the declines are evening out across all the major averages, with the S&P down just about that exact same amount. And even the Nasdaq now down one and a quarter percent. 11,220 is the latest level there. Again, Apple has been under pressure, one of the worst Dow performers, and that's been leading us lower for the last little while. Now, is buy now, pay later going to become buy now, pain later? The payment stocks have taken big hits over the past week. A firm's down 37%, Block's down 24%, PayPal's the least bad, down about 14%, and here are their year-to-date declines. But with the firm set to report after the bell today, should you pay up ahead of those results? My next guest has a buy rating on the stock. Still see significant upside once the dust settles. Joining me now is Chris Brendler. He's senior research analyst at DA Davidson. All right, Chris, I want, I want like the plain talk here. Why? Why should I own this stock now when there's... You know, it, it's looking as bad as every other broken stock out there. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Great question and very timely question. Um, I'd say that, uh, you know, fintechs have a, the characteristics of they trade like tech stocks when in a bull market and they trade like financials in a bear market. And we're clearly in a bear market, especially for, for fintechs and unprofitable fintechs that used to be growing really fast and had huge growth plans and, and probably still do, but there's concerns about how you're going to fund that growth. So, um, it's a, a much better time to be buying it when it's trading like a financial and potential to trade like a tech stock again if we get into better market conditions. Um, and ultimately, this is a great business. And that's that's really the, the key um, you know, to my buy rating is that I, I love this business and think it's going to change how consumers pay for years to come. You know, it is a unique innovation that kind of reorganizes the way that commerce is done. And a lot of the retailers like it for a while. It was increasing the average spend. But how much of that halo effect is diminishing now as we work through excess savings and the novelty of it? Maybe uh, some of the some of the users can't quite meet their obligations and we haven't been through that reckoning yet, have we? Yeah, no, it, it is a key question. And I think that's one of the reasons why the stocks have been selling off is because you do have you have credit risk here. Consumers are borrowing. It's a newer product. We don't know exactly how it's been tested in a recession. Um, but it is a lot of it's shorter term, so that does help. Um, you get real-time data as you make these loans on how they're paying and, and can you know, adjust on the fly. Um, but also, we're still in great consumer credit conditions. I mean, I think the market is looking at, for the next financial crisis, and, and we're not there yet. There's not a big asset problem with, with the subprime mortgages that we had back in 08. Um, we have record job creation and job growth and you know, anything that's wage pressure right now. So the consumer overall is healthy. Debt levels are low from the pandemic. Um, so we're a long way from seeing big credit problems. We are going to see normalization, so it's not going to be as good as it was last year. It can't be. But I think a firm in particular really has an underwriting advantage that they that I think differentiates them from some of their peers that may see credit weaken faster than most. Is a firm profitable, and what are the key metrics we should be watching and listening for tonight? 
Uh, they are not profitable. They're they are a fast-growing tech company that's dumping a lot of money in, into the, the future growth plans. Um, I think on an operating basis, if you look at a loan by loan basis, they are profitable. But I think the the problem is uh, in this market, you're just not seeing um, you know much credit for that. You, you want to be profitable now. I think they could slow down growth and become profitable, um, but I don't think it's in their plans, at least not quite yet. The key metrics tonight, uh, you know, we're looking for for big volume growth. I think consumers, you know, despite what the stocks have done, consumers still love this product. They're using it more than ever in the United States. And I think it's here to stay. So um, combined with the fact they have Amazon and Shopify ramping up, we're looking for, for big volume growth. But you know, I think more importantly, investors are going to want to know about the funding plans. How are you going to fund this growth in this choppy environment? They are the, none of banks. They rely on the capital markets and other players for their funding of, the, of their loans. So uh, I think the balance sheet will take a uh, high priority tonight as well as the recent credit trends. Great point on funding. Uh, quickly, just remind me, what's your price target? Um, my price target is, I believe it's 70 so okay. yeah, it's got, yeah, we have to adjust that tonight. <laughs> uh, Chris, we appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining us today. Awesome, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Chris Brendler with DA Davidson. Coming up, a super tight labor market leading to higher wages, increased benefits, and unionization efforts. Despite those pressures, McDonald's just took a step that could pressure franchisees even more. That exclusive story next. Welcome back. The worker shortage is giving employees more bargaining power than ever, leading to a wave of unionization efforts across the country with high-profile successes at Starbucks and Amazon. So you'd think other big employers would be wary of upsetting their current workforce right now. But McDonald's is rocking the boat, and it could lead to a big battle. Kate Rogers is here with the exclusive. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Tensions are rising up between McDonald's and some of its franchisee base over a new restaurant grading system that the company plans to roll out in January of 2023 with training sessions underway in the back half of this year. Sources that I spoke to are worried it'll alienate workers during a major labor crunch. Remember, franchisees run about 95 percent of McDonald's nearly 14,000 locations in the U.S. The plan's called Operations PACE, which stands for Performance and Customer Excellence. I got a look at a 60-page internal document that lays out the framework. McDonald's basically says it needs a new approach in a changing business climate. It calls for between 6 and 10 visits per store a year from McDonald's and third-party inspectors, and that's on top of other inspections for things like local food safety. Three people that I spoke to with knowledge of the situation who were not authorized to speak publicly on the system fear a less collaborative approach and harsher grading. This is echoed in two separate surveys of hundreds of owners, one public, one internal. One owner told me it just kills morale in this current hiring environment. Another called it tone deaf, adding, quote, my workforce is fragile. Now, for its part, McDonald's said it includes personalized resources to improve performance and drive sales, adding in a statement, quote, we must remain laser focused on maintaining our world famous standards of excellence in our restaurants. This comprehensive performance management system designed with ongoing input from franchisees will offer tailored support and coaching to restaurants to help them provide a seamless McDonald's experience that will keep customers coming back. But as you said, Holding on to that workforce, keeping workers happy right now is so key and top of mind for these franchisees who are running the vast majority of these stores. Back over so to you. So what, what this is saying, Kate, is that McDonald's corporate thinks that the restaurants themselves are kind of a mess and it wants, you know, better, more standardized 
better look? I mean, what, what are they really trying to achieve here? Sure. So the corporates always basically run these, restu- these restaurant uh, grading and assessment systems, right? But this is a new version of it to kind of answer a changing consumer base here um, and keep up with the times for things that they think are, are shifting and changing. Remember, delivery is a big part of this now. Drive-through continues to be really important. So they're going to be using this new grading system starting for real next year in January. Training starts this year. Uh, the franchisee base, as mentioned, is concerned, some of them, that this will be harsher, you know, potentially be too tough on workers right now that they're really trying to hang on to and keep happy because they need them to run those stores and they're not happy about this. Very well said. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rogers with that exclusive. Up next, this ETF outperforming the market today, but it's been in a major slump. Whether we're seeing real glimmers of hope is next. And during May, we're celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage and featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. And I am thrilled to show you our incredibly talented, very own producer, Jeanette Chin. I'm the daughter and granddaughter of Chinese Americans. And growing up, my grandfather took care of me while my parents went to work. And he is the biggest influence in my life to become a journalist. He told me stories of coming to America and traveling by train to different cities looking for work. And I knew that by becoming a journalist, I would be able to see different parts of the country and meet different people, just like my grandfather. And here at CNBC, I get to meet people who make history on a daily basis. And for me, that is a dream come true. And I think my grandfather would be very proud. Welcome back, everybody. Hate to show it to you, but we see more selling pressure on the markets. The Dow was just down more than 500 points, or 1.5%. Similar for the S&P, the NASDAQ down 185. This brings the NASDAQ's week-to-date losses to 8% just since Monday, and we're looking at about a 6% drop for the Dow there as well. Bitcoin also negative once again. Let's get a check on something that is working today. We'll see if it is still, yeah, there we go, up about a half of 1%, the biotech ETF, the XBI. It tracks the small and mid-sized names. It was up 4% earlier on, actually, uh, coming off about a 25% down month as the broader sector slumps. Let's get to Meg Terrell with a market flash on the names moving higher. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it looked a lot better earlier in the day, but even having conversations with people in the biotech and the healthcare space, there was not a lot of conviction that this gain was going to hold for this space. And indeed, we are seeing it give back some of that. But you are seeing some of the particularly smaller names within the XBI seeing some pretty big moves today. Uh, We'll start with Bridge Bio up almost 10% there. They actually did have some news, a licensing deal in oncology with Bristol Myers, perhaps contributing to that. But you're also seeing big moves from Gossamer, Amicus Therapeutics, and Turning Point Therapeutics, uh, the biggest moves in the XBI among names over $500 million market cap, but these still are among some of the smaller names. Among the bigger biotechs, you are not seeing such strong moves. And it has just been an incredibly tough year for biotechs in general. Uh, Over the last week, you're seeing the XBI and the IBB both down, uh, the XBI down there almost 15% just in the last week alone. And this is despite, Kelly, some much needed M&A that we saw earlier in the week from Pfizer and Biohaven. For the year, you are seeing the XBI down almost 50%. It has just been so tough. They need to see more M&A and good clinical trial data. Kelly? That is an excellent point. Maybe that's our glimmer. At least there was that Pfizer deal this week. Um, Maybe starting to turn things around. Meg, thank you very much, our Meg Terrell. Still ahead, the NASDAQ is down about 15%, 16% now over the past month. There it is today, down another almost 200 points. Uh, but some founders and executives have managed to sell billions in holdings.
holdings ahead of this big tech wreck. We have the numbers and how new SEC rules could impact future sales. That is next. Welcome back. Investors are grappling with more ongoing volatility. While some founders and executives managed to net big gains before their share prices bottomed out, Robert Frank is here with a look at the high-profile folks who took billions off the table. Robert? Well, Kelly, investors losing about $3 trillion in stock market wealth so far this year, but some insiders cashed out early. Peloton shares down 90% from their peak, but CEO John Foley cashed out 119 million in stocks and insiders in total selling over 700 million dollars in stock just over the past two years. That's according to Smart Insider. Carvana's market cap has dropped from 70 billion to just over 6 billion. But Ernest Garcia II, he is the father of the CEO. They jointly control the voting shares. He sold three and a half billion dollars worth of shares as that stock was rising. Palantir is down over 80%, but insiders sold over $2 billion worth of shares. The CEO, Alex Karp, unloading over $1 billion of shares. And Coinbase, talking a lot about that today, those shares trading around $52. Bucks. CEO Brian Armstrong sold at $389, just around IPO day, cashing out about $300 million in shares. And then Roblox, they're down about 80% from their highs. Insiders cashing out $800 million before that big stock drop, CEO David Bazuki selling about $260 million worth of shares last year. By the way, his biggest sales were back in November. That's when that stock reached its highs. Now, Kelly, most of these sales were, so, were through so-called 10B51 plans. Those are the pre-scheduled selling plans. The SEC now proposing new rules that would tighten those plans to prevent insiders from basically creating a plan, selling stock immediately. These plans were designed to prevent insider trading, or at least the appearance but they've been abused. Yeah, or Kelly? maybe people should follow their sales more since they were clearly pretty good at it. Is the issue that the typical employees were still under lockups? In some of those cases, the IPOs, but uh, you know, we really don't know what the employees may have, have sold as well because it's only the insiders and the top holders that we get disclosures on. So employees might have sold as well. They have good information just like the executives, maybe not quite as good, but certainly not the information that everyday investors have. All right, Robert, thank you very much, Robert Frank. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.